Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesley demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up? Welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Today, we're talking a movie from 2022, available on HBO Max, The Menu. The Hunger Games. Nice. The, or is it really just Ratatouille? Is it? <laughs> Hong Chow throws down. Hong Chow throws down? Yeah, finally. We got to see her fight. We were waiting for her to fight in the whale. The lead disciple, the Mater D for Hawthorne? The only real fight scene. Do you, on date nights, do you ever do like food yuppie Hawthorne style eateries? Well, two, maybe three weeks ago, we went to the pasta bar. Or maybe it's just pasta bar. And um, we should have known that this place was going to be really nice. Neither of us knew what to expect. We were pretty dressed down. But it was a super, super foodie place. It was a definitely the menu style. If not level place, but menu style place. The host lets you in. And then you're seated at the bar. And you only have one choice of cocktail. And it's this you know very small select group of people. You're then ushered into the open concept kitchen slash restaurant together you're seated and it's the whole nine with the with the foodie presentations by each each of the sous chefs and then the visit by the sous chef and the wine pairing with the sommelier and blah 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 man the deceptively named simplistic the pasta bar it could be pasta bar at downtown disney Exactly. I was, honestly, I was expecting that it was going to be cafeteria style soup, like soup plantation, right? build your own pastas. But this is a, but it's got a rock solid rigatoni or something, right? <laughs> right. And I was like, this is not okay. Like this should definitely be some kind of special occasion, like once in a lifetime meal. And here we are on a, on a random Friday night in like jeans and sweaters going to pasta bar. It was very nice, and I'm and I know that this is not a foreign experience to you because you've had a number of experiences like this. And I did want to ask if you consider yourself a foodie. I consider myself a foodie, but in a different way than Nicholas Holt's character. When you went to the pasta bar and they sat down and the sous chef came by and you were limited to one specific cocktail that they had planned out and everything to the letter, were they rude to you? Like 
this I, I understand I came to understand what this movie was about but when they sat down it never didn't feel rude at one point one of the <laughs> ill-fated customers is like you're the customer you're paying him to serve you which is the way it should be but it just seemed like they were mean the whole time and that's perfectly in keeping with what Hawthorne and the chef ultimately had planned but that's not the way it should be they certainly weren't rude to us but there is a certain pretense that they maintain and maybe they looked sideways at Brian a little bit when he requested a ginger ale and declined the cocktail right so but they definitely weren't rude it, they treaded a fine line in the menu right like it's like when you pay for pay someone to be mean to you it's like theatrical mean like they were we're gonna be mean with without being outright rude until I felt until the suicide moment where you're like, okay, this is squarely in a very, very dark place. Right. For me, that was when it went off the rails and became a parody of sorts. Like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't the suicide as much as it was when stuff's going down. And, and after the dude, I think it was after the dude shot himself and Nicholas Holtz just eating like with gusto. And I was like, <laughs> right. obviously, this is a completely different type of movie. It, it's not like a horror movie or it's meant not not meant to be dramatic or taken seriously where we can view the idea of Chef's Restaurant as being funny, kind of. Right. Did you hold out hope for a moment thinking because of Nicholas Holt's reaction that this was a piece of theater and that that was a staged suicide? Absolutely. And not really? Yeah. Okay. They would come in like with little bread or whatever and scrape up the brains that were strawberry jelly and cream cheese or something. (laughs) And then like smeared on bread for you or something? Like a murder bread plate. And and so... so (laughs) We're talking about the rudeness or whatever and the fact that you're limited to one cocktail and Brian's like, ginger ale, please. But um, there's there's something to the artifice and the theatricality or whatever where the the wine is like hyper decanted. What do they do? Use an immersion blender or something to hyper decant it? It's absurd because, again, you're paying for and this is not the thing where the customer is always right or whatever because of the designs of this restaurant. But I don't care how much I'm paying. If I walked into the restaurant and they were like, this is a breadless bread plate i'd be like f you dude that's not gonna fly with me (laughs) so you related to anya taylor joy's character where you're like this is ridiculous yeah she was the cheeseburger eating every person so in interviews ray fines talked about the kind of food that he likes and he says it's not to this level it's more simplistic just simple ingredients prepared very simply in a way that's delicious and not with the theatricality and so while i've had a lot you know you and i have had lots of fancy meals prefix menus stuff like that upscale dining experiences some of which the drinks are specifically paired and everything and it's like dinner theater i never got into the ultra yuppie stupid eclair served on a shovel or there was something like served in vhs cases or something ridiculous that i saw recently or in a shoe and that's Uh. that's the part that really annoys me (laughs) served in a shoe i'm not kidding there was something served in like a boot or something (laughs) have you been to a michelin star restaurant yes then you've been to the base camp of mount bullshit Oh, sure. Uh, to the base. But I, on the, the mountain where anything goes and all rules are off at base camp, there's still some law of law and order. Like there are bodies mm. littered all over Everest because there's no regulation. You can do whatever you want. And these high concept, high end restaurants, you can do whatever you want. But in the base camp, the laws of Nepal still apply. And if you murder somebody, <laughs> okay. you, you're probably going to be caught and prosecuted for it. <laughs> okay. 
Good use of that analogy. So I like food that's focused on, you know, the the flavor of food and not the dumb aspect. I mean, I hope that people understand there's a difference between food that is is plated specifically and, you know, aesthetics are great. And if food looks pretty, it's great. But if it's plated, it, it definitely feels purposely ironic, iron, iron, ironical, ironic. <laughs> yeah, the whole point is that the food is unnecessarily expensive. You and I grew up on fast foods and cheap food and stuff. And the idea of paying for the meal, in my opinion, has got to reflect the quality of the food itself. Not the, It's not medieval times up in here. We're looking to eat delicious stuff. And mm. so, you know, they, at one point he said, this is what you're paying for. And $1,200 for a high concept meal, if it's like a weird snuff dinner where they're eventually going to cook and eat one or more of the people involved, that's kind of cheap. Like, that's a fairly good price. I was about to say 1200 didn't seem all that unreasonable. Right? The boat fuel and the fact that they're going to have to import all that stuff onto the island, it wasn't terrible. And that sounds horribly bougie of us It to really say. does. So bougie. But I think for a, a high-end last supper type meal, people probably could have and probably would have been elastic enough to to pony up, especially like the tech bros and the the celebrity poser and the rich couple. Like they don't care. It's about the bragging rights and the experience and and the exclusivity of it all. So you know, what do they care if it's twelve hundred or twenty five hundred? Um, which I think would have been a more realistic price. But it sounds like your philosophy toward food, at least like high end food experiences, would be it's got to be grub. Like you got to. It's satisfying, you know, food experience and not just like picking at or pecking at like breadless bread plates. And here's the distinction. It doesn't have to be exotic. It doesn't have to be Indiana Jones chilled monkey brains for you to appreciate it. Uh, it actually has to taste good. And in some cases, maybe not $1,200 a plate, but in some cases paying a hundred or a hundred and fifty or even two hundred dollars for dinner sometimes the worth is reflected in the taste of the food and the quality of the food because you can get a hamburger anywhere but the hamburger like where revenge is a dish best served cold or you or you escaped the murder dinner or whatever that hamburger was totally worth it and no matter how high end i've heard chefs all agree that american cheese is the best cheese for for a cheeseburger american meeting like craft singles yeah because those have made a wild resurgence in our household. Homemade egg McMuffin with Morningstar sausage patty. Mmm. Oh, American cheese. All melty. But I do think this movie, the purpose of it is to point out the absurdity of the high class who talk, even if you know your stuff, even if you're like uh, Janet McTeer's character who knows who's a food critic and is on her game. Still, it highlights the absurdity of restaurant crit criticism and uh, the, the lengths that people will go to to, to uh, establish their idea of being refined through what they put in their mouth. I'm glad you bring that up, though, because I found it to be a little confusing. This movie was both in fan service to foodies, featuring genuinely well-crafted dishes prepared by world-renowned chefs. Actual world-renowned chef. They have the only woman who's ever received three Michelin stars in her restaurant preparing all the dishes. See, that's what I'm saying. This was legit. And it was in fan service to foodies, but also a critique of food culture. And it felt a little two-faced in that way. Mm. Are you saying, you know, these are the highlights of the culture that you that you are a fan of? And also, these are the horrible parts, the dark parts of, of this food culture where people are obsessed and the people who come to it are just 
bad people for whatever reason. Yeah, it's broadest appeal. You're giving the foodies the foodie culture stuff that they want, and they identify with that stuff. And the people who are like, this is absurd. They can watch this movie as a parody. I think about American History X. I think that DVD is a big seller among neo-Nazis who are like, oh, I love that Nazi movie. That's awesome, right? Regardless of the comeuppance and the inevitable moral lesson imparted at the end of that movie, you just overlook that stuff. If you're the Nazi, it's all about the ghoul scenes where before he learns his lesson and then, and then for the rest of us, it's like, Oh, yeah, that was a Nazi movie, but it had the morals, so it makes it justifiable. Okay. So you just choose to look the other way when they're actually making fun of you as a foodie? Yeah, exactly. Or maybe you are the type of foodie that has a thick enough skin where you can take a searing look at yourself. Searing, but also you could be a Nicholas Holt-level foodie where you're like, oh, man, to die in service of the art, to be part of the meal, to be part of the, the grand plan of the seven deadly sins represented a la seven or whatever would be to go down in history uh, with some notoriety, with some, to be remembered as such. So I get that Nicholas Holt was a pretentious foodie wannabe, his character. But what was his archetype? Like, I totally got the power-tasting tech bros, you know, the food critic representing kind of the urchin of the of the food world. And she even had, like, her companion barnacle, you know, her hanger on her, who was hanging out. There's the celebrity poser, name dropper. What did he call himself? He was like, I'm a name-dropping whore or something. Oh, yeah. And then there's, like, the rich people who ironically have no taste. Like, what archetype was... Tyler. While I don't care to deconstruct each and every one, I do know that the writers mentioned that each of the seven deadly sins was in fact represented, which is what made this feel like seven. And I thought ultimately they were going to be sacrificed for their sins and made into dishes representing those sins. And I th didn't you think that the whole time everybody was going to be eaten or they were going to have to eat each other? <laughs> um, huh. <laughs> No, I don't think my mind was going there, but I was definitely thinking that the smokehouse protein maturation shed was underutilized. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think we were supposed to assume that those were human entrails, human sausages and stuff that had to be eaten at a specific time. To answer your question, I'm not sure what Nicholas Holt's character represented, whether it be pride or envy, probably envy. I guess he was the person who was most concerned about Chef hating him, and yet for some mm. reason still took pictures, and I get how that came around. But if you want to be perceived very particularly, if you're the person that has been in correspondence with Chef the whole time, and if he didn't know the angle or whatever, risking the pictures for the gram is not probably not the way to go. To, to curry favor mm. curry mm. man i just see that that was a, a self-assist I, I dunked my own bank shot <laughs> you just you just threw it up there and then dunked it in <laughs> yep yeah i think that he probably had some like auto feed and if that was his last moment if that was his the last his last broadcast to social media and the world right he'd risk it you can't really fault tyler for being a devotee like he's a dork and all that kind of stuff but you kind of have to hate him for pulling an innocent victim into the mix because uh, he can't be seated alone yeah i mean i do think that was part of his whatever sin he represented but he was the guy who loved the idea of the chef and 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 being an upstanding sort of personage you know he, he they were he was dining among notables the esteemed food critic and the movie star and the couple who that was like their whole thing he wanted to be one of those people couldn't do it alone but also had the prostitute in the mix 
because I guess she would look good on his arm and represent well if his girlfriend left him or something and he needed another person. He seemed like the douchey dude who would, that was his MO, the whole, the whole mm. culture and wanting to look refined and, and not, can't be a food critic, can't be a, sh- a head chef like his idol. So he is the consummate enjoyer. And Anya Taylor-Joy is striking looking. Then you put her in basically lingerie and like Doc Martin boots. And then you're like, okay, you know that she doesn't fit in here. Even when she was in her coat and stuff, I was like, "Mm, those boots are off. You can tell so much by a person's shoes. Definitely the shoes. Women's fashion is as absurd as high-end novelty foods. That dress wasn't even a dress. (laughs) It's a good thing she didn't have, it was only the dudes, because she wouldn't have lasted out in the Hunger Games in the island running around. But yeah, it's true. But just like when you just think about the treatment of the Margot character, like side by side, if you look at Chef, who's obviously this despicable person, he's almost less despicable than Tyler. Like Chef has a no judgment service worker affinity with Margot that you kind of have to appreciate from him. Yeah, he was a fried jockey. They came from the same place. They, one of them kept it a little bit more real than the other. He was like more of he was putting on airs. He was the tar of tasting tar of tasting yep. there's is alliterative get it anyway a curious thing listening to many interviews by ray fines people often asked him are you a foodie is that your thing and he talked about how he prefers simple food but he refused to condemn chef as a bad person as the villain he said he was misunderstood and hardworking and sort of a genius with a dark side or something. But it was weird that he kept, you know, how he plays so evil. How can you be typecast as so evil, you know, because of his history with Harry Potter and stuff. And he's like, I don't think Chef is evil, which is weird. I don't know if it was a method thing, but uh, very curious perspective. Yeah, I guess if you play him evil, then he becomes a caricature. And if you play him as a sympathetic character who I think ultimately is just depressed, he's like reached... What do you call it? The end of its his art? Uh, art at the edge of the abyss. <laughs> I mean, when you reach that point, uh, you know, he's probably mentally ill. Um, yeah, I think. But not just him. Everybody else was nutso. And, and all the sous chefs and stuff were obviously troubled. It would have been really unrealistic to think that all of these people would sacrifice themselves. And go down with the chef unless they were in a cult. Fully island cult. Planted those, yeah, they planted those seeds pretty well in the tour of the island, right? You see the Quonset hut in which they all live with the exposed toilet. Do you notice the toilet in the foreground? <laughs> no. There was like in the foreground of like the wide shot of the of the hut when they're all like, oh, so you like the spree decor, you like live here or whatever. Uh, there was like a exposed like prison toilet that I'm assuming they all used and scrubbed meticulously after the fact. Man. Yeah. So very culty. And they were obviously all on all drinking the Kool-Aid and ready to go down with the ship. Yep. Heaven's Gate style. It's like they took the cult devotees and then taught them to cook. And uh, <laughs> right. so it's cult cult first and then cook, cook later. So they, they nurtured that in them. And I guess this was his whole master plan to just take them down in this fiery fiery wreck it was so funny i think i think the next day after watching the menu which did stick with brian and me for a bit the girls and i made uh s'mores over our portable portable campfire that we got for for christmas which is literally like a like a big candle with briquettes (laughs) 
And all I could think of was that this was just like an assault on my taste buds. In fact, we were out of graham crackers, so we used Oreos instead. Man, that's genius. But <laughs> at the same time, I did take issue with the, the other problem with the high-end food stuff is this concept of deconstructing foods. Yep. Oh, God, I hate that. So give me food, put it in front of me that's ready to eat, that's mixed, that's marinated, that's absolutely appropriate, because otherwise it's a gimmick. And the ultimate deconstructed food is s'mores. I kind of get it as a concept if they give it to you at Gukaku, because you can roast the marshmallows over the flame. But me having to cook my own food? No, you're here to cook my food. I guess Korean barbecue is an exception, but when I come out of Korean barbecue or gyukaku, I'm exhausted. My arms are all sore and I have to cook for everyone <laughs> for some reason. S'mores as a concept only could have worked for the end of this movie, but I was so, I oh, it's it's happened a couple times at restaurants where you, you pay a lot for a meal and then they're like s'mores at the end. And I'm like, no, not s'mores. That's a little bit too simple. <laughs> but then again, I've had s'mores where the, the chef made the marsh handmade made the marshmallows and stuff and that's a little bit more interesting but it, it bugged me except how fitting it was you could actually see the marshmallows charring and stuff and browning when they were wearing the marshmallow coats and they were burning at the end <laughs> so in that way it was appropriate and you see her the lady's horrified look when she's wearing her chocolate hat yeah and it's like melting down her face yeah but uh ray finds obviously as Voldemort and apparently I can't substantiate this I don't know how far they got in the process but Daniel Radcliffe was seriously considered for Nicholas Holt's character which would have made a Harry Potter reunion and that would have been cool Whoa. and uh and in in perfect roles right for these well I don't know actually Harry would have lost this round spoiler he he triumphs in the Harry Potter series but I was very disappointed at the end that it ended up being s'mores and not like a, a Lord Voldemort or something for dessert Voldemort. <laughs> I thought it was kind of random, but visually compelling, right? Again, with the, the chocolate fezzes melting down their faces in this very emotional kind of bloody, you know, dark blood-esque tears. But I did think that at that point, the clients, they went down without a fight. Like they were mysteriously resigned to their fate. Like they never really put up a big fight in the stink. Maybe like halfway with the, the fake Coast Guard guy. Right, and the chair through the window or trying to put the chair through the window. I mean, don't you die like clawing and screaming at the door in your chocolate fez and your <laughs> and your marshmallow poncho? <laughs> Me, like... absolutely, I think, anyway. <laughs> but this was, they, the, and leading the charge was Fingerless Larry, who was made an example of, but then who still ate. And why would he continue the rigmarole of this dinner party? We had to go through the whole course because this movie was coursed like a dinner we knew we had to see the end and dessert was going to be a final flourish or whatever but yeah they were just sort of waiting and not even biding their time kind of waiting everyone except for the tyler character who who checked out which was appropriate just kind of waited it out they were all drinking the kool-aid it was kind of event horizon like all hellish or everybody's resigned to the hell orgy by the end of it <laughs> it was like there was some message in Margot being the only character who actually had a will to live. Yeah, she's us, right? The everyman, the cheeseburger eaten, one who can see through the artifice. Because everyone else was lived by the sword, died by the sword, or the skewer. So why did Chef Slowick let her live? Uh, I think he saw the kinship in that she was the person who could escape, who wasn't bound. He imprisoned himself on that island. 
He lived there. Everybody else lived there. His entire construct of person, uh, his personality was built around that island and everybody on it. He was going to go down with the ship, not just because he was the captain, but because he was the ship. The ship was, I mean, the whole island was sort of him and she was not. He, I think he envied her ability to cast away everything, had nothing really to lose and would be content not having a claim or being recognized for the kind of person who would go to these kinds of meals and stuff. She was free to eat cheeseburgers. Did that cheeseburger look good? Absolutely, it looked good. You do the thing. <laughs> it was a smash burger, technically speaking. You put the razor-thin onions uh, on top so that when you when you flip it, the onions kind of melt and, and disappear. Uh, good crust, American cheese, double burger at that. It was like a hand-baked bun or whatever. It wasn't a brioche. I think it was, it was pretty good. Like just no frills, no condiments, no accessory. It wasn't accessorized. Yeah. It was just like a double meat down-home burger. I definitely don't consider myself a foodie because I decided last night that my favorite thing to eat in the world is classic ruffles with homemade like powder in the sour cream onion dip. Yeah, California dip. You're the one who taught me to dip Doritos in sour cream. Oh, <laughs> so good. But look, I, I think the, the point is our palates are at least refined enough in adulthood to be able to appreciate when some someone does either a radical thing that works or a very simple thing that evokes the natural flavors where the steak isn't drowned in ketchup or in steak sauce. Rather, you know, you're getting the aged quality of the beef with the, the Malden bougie salt and the organic whole ground pepper. Because <laughs> the joke goes that marriage is just you, you and your spouse asking each other where you want to eat over and over again until you die. And <laughs> and while I'm not married, we have that discussion often. Well, what do you mm -hmm. want? And I'm like, if you died in a fiery wreck or if you never existed, I would be eating Del Taco. Like food is food. Mm -hmm. And I love junk food as much as delicious food. And sometimes it's just not worth the effort unless someone like Chef is preparing it for me. Is our taste refined enough to appreciate Mark Myloid's The Menu? I understand it for what it was. I didn't crazy love it because it straddles the line between parody and food porn or whatever. Did you note that the camera angles, the slow pushes and stuff were taken directly from Chef's Table that they talked about? Is that a television show? Yeah. They aped that concept and the shooting style, like exactly. And so, yes, I understood it. I didn't understand the lengths that they went to. And I, I did get a little bit of anxiety because we talked about after the movie, well, what if Chef put you on the spot and you knew you were probably going to die? What would you have cooked on the spot to impress a Michelin chef? I, I don't know the answer. You got to stick to what you know. That's when you pull out the craft macaroni and cheese and you're like, I can make this really good. Right. Because but there are many entrances to the menu and whichever door you come through. The menu has something to offer for you. And so, yeah, I think that I understood it, that I got it. And what would have been seared on your tortilla for Taco Tuesday? See, that's the thing that we talked about, too, because I like the concept of what he was trying to do. This was kind of the reveal to everybody. This was pulling back the curtain and that, you know, you are part of the meal and your sins and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, laser etching a tortilla seems like a cheat to me. Uh, I need my tortillas rustically, you know, open fire grilled on a stone cairn or something, not laser etched with a machine. <laughs> it seems like gourmet cooking with high tech stuff is a cheat. 
I was like, man, the, see, the, the heating isn't evenly distributed. It has to be in service of the picture or the image. So this part's way more charred than that part. And it bothered me. But an important turning point in the story, right, where we're clearly re revealing that, that everything about this menu is premeditated and intended to be an indictment of these people and who they are, what they, what they represent. I thought it was an interesting um, double entendre to suggest that the tech bros were cooking the books. Cooking uh, the books, man. I wasn't sure exactly what was on Margot's tortilla, as considering it was probably intended for Miss Vesterman or whatever, whatever her name was, Westerbrook. But um, I think that I would have been outed as a as a non foodie on my tortilla. It would have been like me eating like a Tommy's chili tamale or something. <laughs> And been like, we see you. We know you're not real. All right. And let's switch it up for the menu. Um, we're going to make it a three-star Michelin rating. Um, that's hard because Michelin stars are already notoriously difficult to come by. I think if you give it one Michelin star and not a Bib Gourmand, this is already uh, a movie above and beyond. So I guess on a three-star scale rating, I'd give it maybe a two, a moderate two. I could see that, you know, it's it's high concept and it could be seen as a parody if you're viewing it from those high levels. But I kind of saw it as more a very simple, like uh, for the rest of us, like killing a spouse or a teacher. It's like a, a chef's revenge fantasy, you know, to be able to, to school your pretentious diners who don't understand your concepts. That's what it felt like to me. And in that way, it was perfectly fine. But I don't know that this, this isn't the one, the subversive masterpiece that people perceive perceive Silence of the Lambs to be or or any movie of a parody type uh, similar to the menu um, it didn't feel particularly high, con high concept it might have been Velveeta under there <laughs> it was just a, like very craftily disguised yeah uh, fake it, cheese it's fine it's fine sure I'll join you I mean in that scale I think putting it at two stars puts it above the line so uh, there you have it a two star rated the menu available on HBO Max this episode was a request of Gladys so shout out to Gladys we take your requests here at or whatever movies go to patreon become a movie friend and make your request we'll review and discuss your movie right here on or whatever movies other ways that you can support us, go to wherever you find podcasts, give us a five-star rating, like and subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram at or whatever movies. Also, we'd love to hear from you. 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on the menu and bon appetit. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. 
Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid. 